0: It is human nature to destroy, to consume the Earth's resources, fill the skies with smoke and the oceans with plastic waste. This is the common sense argument. Humans are inherently selfish and destructive. Jeff Sparrow, a socialist, Walkley award-winning writer, columnist at The Guardian and broadcaster, argues that this narrative is not only wrong and leads to paralysis in a time when we need action, It lets those that are actually guilty off the hook. In his new book, Crimes Against Nature, Capitalism and Global Heating, Sparrow corrects the narrative. It is a very small minority of humans, not all, that make the conscious decision to destroy nature. The book is a political indictment of capitalism's role in the climate crisis. He shows that at every point in its war against nature there was struggle by ordinary people and that the greatest story of human beings' relationship to the earth has not been one of destruction, but of mutual dependence and enrichment. Jeff Sparrow joins me today to discuss these issues and how through struggle this can be our future too. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity, a revolutionary socialist group in Australia. I'm Sarah Thorne, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam, Melbourne. Jeff, welcome.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: We could do a whole podcast just on the first chapter. It's an incredible story, or um, perhaps myth is more accurate, on um, America's love affair with car culture. Supposedly, it exemplifies the political dynamic of ecological destruction resulting from the greed of the masses. But you tell a very different story. Can you give us a taste of what the reality was?
1: Sure. In some ways, I use that first chapter as a kind of metonym for the arguments that runs throughout the entire book. Because as you say, car culture kind of exemplifies that argument you discussed in your introduction the one that claims that people ordinary people are natively greedy and selfish and it's in fact um the people at the bottom of the totem pole working class people who are the most greedy and the most selfish and the thing that exemplifies that one of the examples that people use is they talk about the way that greedy working-class Americans love their cars and embrace this, you know, car culture, which is all about cars being bigger and better and more polluting. And, you know, it's one of those kind of stories that even people who see themselves on the left can kind of nod along with because it makes intuitive sense. It's just that when you go back and look at the history of the American automobile and the way that... It developed. You actually discovered the story is completely the opposite of that. That, in fact, as you also said, that every step along the way, the developments of the um, of the car as we know it today was contested, and contested by ordinary people who protest who protested about the destructive elements um, involved in, in in car culture. So, for for, for instance. At the very early phases of the development of the uh, internal combustion engine, the car was a luxury and it was very much associated with wealthy ruling class figures and for it to function it needed to drive on roads that previously had been shared by everyone the roads were seen almost as a kind of commons. they were places where children could play or old people could sit and it was the responsibility of the traveler to negotiate between all of the people who were using this space well of course as soon as you introduce the car all of that goes out of the window, and one of the things that happens in the very early phases of um, the American car is that there is a sudden and really dramatic increase in fatalities. So all of a sudden, these cars are killing thousands and thousands of people each year. Now today, we take that for granted. The the, the road toll is just one of the destructive parts of capitalism that's being so normalised that we barely think about it. But when it first started to happen, people were appalled by it. People were just just couldn't believe that these, you know, these selfish wealthy people were driving their cars at high speed along a road that previously had been shared by the whole community, and they were killing mostly children. And so there were all of these campaigns to stamp out the motor car. You know, in, in some places there are reports of people putting wires across, so you know, so, so that people driving open cars would have to risk getting their heads cut off. The, the, the hatred towards the car was. Um, was was so it, extensive. Now, of course, these people weren't protesting about having, you know, a, a, about the, the, the road fatalities, weren't climate protesters in the way that we think about it now, but they are an example of the way that every facet of the technology was contested, and all along the way there were opportunities where new developments could have been used for the betterment of the population as a whole, but instead were used for... Um, the profits of a minority and one of the things i try to stress is the utter cynicism of uh, big business and the ruling class in the attempt to normalize these destructive ecologically destructive um, industries so for for instance um with the automobile what they do to overcome the hostility of ordinary people to 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 cars and to and the the opposition to the massive road toll is they run a campaign to blame pedestrians for being killed by cars and so they um develop this figure of the jaywalker the term jaywalker in was was developed by the automobile industry to suggest that the person who's responsible when they get killed on a road is, in fact, the pedestrian. It's the responsibility of the pedestrian to get out of the way of cars. And they engage in this incredibly cynical PR campaign, you know, holding parades where, you know, they mock jaywalkers. You know, setting up press bureaus specifically to blame the people who are killed in road crashes rather than the cars, precisely to normalise the use of automobiles and to demonise the idea of sharing roads. Now, that's just one of many, many examples, but it's a really striking one because, you know, the idea of jaywalking has entered our vocabularies. We just take it for granted that it's our, our job to get out of the way of the cars, but for the generation that, that saw the introduction of the motor car, that, that wasn't the case at all, and this was part of a contestation.
0: You also take a deep dive into the concept of human nature and that until very recently we did not see it as separate to the natural world. Uh, like all animals we manipulate our surroundings to survive but we also are different in that we make conscious decisions, we plan, cooperate and decide what to do with the natural res- resources that, that we use. Um, we also rely on people as you say to, and um you know form societies which will then shape our interaction with our environment i'd like you to tell us about the ancient frozen lead fragments discovered in greenland it's quite a story (laughs) um and where did they come from and what what do many other people say this demonstrates about human nature and what do you actually make of it yeah
1: okay so this is another um Cool little story, and and to put it in context, let me let me go back a, a, a bit because there's a common sense understanding of environmentalism or the environmental project which sees it as a question of defending nature against humanity. And you know, in, in everyday uses, usage, usage if you're talking about like a forest campaign or something, that seems to kind of make sense. What you're doing when you're, you know, defending the environment is you're stopping people coming in and, you know, wrecking a, a, a pristine, um, um, a, a, a pristine environment. But of course, if you think about it, as soon as you posit this opposition between uh, nature and humanity, and it, I guess it's most epitomised in the old concept of wilderness. As soon as you posit these two things as an opposition, you make the environmental project almost impossible. So, you know, if if you define what we're doing as environmentalists as, as defending a wilderness and defining a wilderness as Um, a part of nature that's entirely untouched by humanity. Well, the problem we have then is the wilderness is always already in in decline. That's, you know, part of the whole point of the concept of the Anthropocene is that there's no longer any part of the planet that isn't affected by human beings. And so if we see ourselves as defending a wilderness, well, you know, we're fighting a, a rearguard battle that we can't, win Mm. now in in terms of um the lead deposits that you were talking about before they're a really interesting um example because they were found deep below the permafrost um you know in somewhere that in, in, in theory should have been one of the most pristine areas in the world and yet these lead deposits had actually come from ancient rome and what they um were the result of this the, the Roman Empire uh, was heavily reliant on lead um, in all sorts of ways. The, the Romans used lead in, in, in pipes, but they also used it for you know, household um, appliances and um, so household tools and all sorts of other things. I mean, as an interesting side note, there's a there, there is some research to suggest that the Romans also suffered heavily from lead poisoning as a result of this, but that's here or there anyway. So they they, they relied on. Um, they, they relied on lead, and um, they used lead in the um, extraction of, um, in, in the process by which they, they they manufactured their currency out of silver. Um, and that process, which involved heating the metals intensely, led to um, particles of lead going up in the air and then travelling thousands of miles, where they ended up deep below this um, this this. This, this frozen ice and why this is, was significant for archaeologists meant they could actually drill down to the permafrost and they could have this frozen ret- frozen record that corresponded to the rise and fall of the Roman Empire because it corresponded with the amount of um, silver being mined. It provided a proxy of the measurement of the amount of um, silver, the the extent of the Roman economy. If you see what I mean, so you can see that you know when there's a war, it tends to fall. In times of peace, it tends to increase. So it's this fascinating kind of like um, archeological discovery. But for our purposes, it's really interesting. because it shows that. Even in the ancient world, the the, the most pristine parts of the world were already being affected by human beings. And so this concept of a wilderness as being something that's absolutely untouched was always already a kind of myth. And then to answer your other question, what's really fascinating about it is that you you can look at pollution being created by the roman empire say so, okay this is this shows humans have always been destructive even back you know in the ancient world they were sending particles of lead up into the air but of course if you actually investigate how these particles of lead were created well the mines in um, in, in ancient Rome were worked by slaves um so the people who were digging up this 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 lead and then helping to, to to smelt it we're not we're not doing so of their own choice they were compelled to do it by this incredibly hierarchical and brutal society so it raises this question then okay we can see that this pollution is taking place in the ancient world. Who is responsible? Is everybody in Rome responsible for it? Clearly the slaves aren't morally responsible for uh, you know, this pollution that was a result of something that they are forcibly compelled to do. So it's an interesting example. It opens up the question, well, actually the question of which human beings are responsible for this pollution is actually a really flawed one. And one that becomes even more interesting when we move into the modern age. So, for, for me, it's a kind of example which sort of opens up some of the main issues that I try and touch. On in, 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 in the book, you know, establishing the idea that human beings have always interacted with nature and have always changed nature in ways so that, like, you know, the pristine wilderness never really existed. But at the same time, the ways in which they've done so have varied tremendously according to different kinds of society. And you can see you know, how that would have obvious political implications for today.
0: Following on from this argument, you say that, you know, misanthropists must explain the societies that also cared for the Earth as much as they do for those that destroy it. Um, And you show us how in a number of circumstances, not least of all here, that the absence of humans can be just as destructive. But I'd like you to sort of talk to me about the example you use about the impact of what scientists have termed the great dying in the Americas?
1: Yes. Yeah, so, so again, this is another little um, fascinating piece of recent research which suggests that the um, the so-called conquests of the Americas had a tremendous effect on the Earth as a whole. It was actually one of the factors that contributed to the so-called uh, mini ice age of, of the early modern. Period, and the argument goes that that when the conquistadors arrived in the New World, they um, their their campaign of violence and the disease, diseases that they spread killed so many people that it disrupted the complex system of um, agriculture that already existed america so again prior to, to, to the european conquest the americas were not this you know this pristine wilderness they were a place where you know large numbers of people existed and those people had over many thousands of years modified the natural environment but because was, this was a pre-capitalist society the way in which they modified the natural environment was quite different from um, the kind of interaction with nature that we associate with modern capitalism, and the destruction that was that was occasioned by um, the European conquest of the New World led to such deaths that so many deaths that these practices of these agricultural practices could no longer be continued, and uh, that led to a, a significant shift in the forest patterns of the New World, which actually had a, a Had an effect on the climate as a whole. Now, you know, yeah. In some ways, it's a little bit of a speculative argument, and there's an interesting debate about, you know, like how much this could actually be measured or or, or whatever. But for my purposes, that's not really the main point. It's a story that I think illustrates a couple of really key issues for us. Firstly, as you say, this argument that humans are always interacting with their nature, and the real question is not whether humans change the world, the way that we change the world, and the way that our society allows us to consciously control that change or not. And also the incredibly destructive nature of of capitalism that manifested itself even in the very early encounters between the old world and um, the new world and have manifested manifested
0: themselves even more so ever since then. Yeah, you also sort of explain how capitalism and the system of wage labour alienated people from nature, stripped them of humanity and turned their own labour into a weapon against them. Aboriginal people Saw this early on, and they rejected it. And a similar transformation of labour was also unfolding in England and was being resisted. These parallels in the book were—they were really striking. Can you talk a little bit about this? Yeah, I think this is a really interesting point, and one that particularly for um, people living in Australia is
1: especially salient for 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 us. So, if you read the accounts of the white settlers in the early invasion of the australian continent one of the points that they make over and over again against the indigenous people that they encounter is that they say that they're lazy and they don't want to work and they can't be made to work if you unpick those claims what they reveal is something Absolutely fascinating, because of course Indigenous people have been living in on the Australian continent for since time immemorial. You know, the archaeological evidence keeps pushing back. You know, that date to sixty thousand years or, or more, but for a long long time and in that way they had in that time they had developed a really sophisticated system for managing the way they related to the flora and fauna of the Australian continent which so they they governed the uh, patterns of hunting, the patterns of agriculture by systems of of custom, of law and, and rituals, which meant that rather than destroying the plants, and animals around them, the effect of um, the indigenous presence was to actually enhance the ecosystems. You know, and, and this is an argument that was touched upon in you know the the the, um, the debates around. Bruce Pascoe, but of course he's not the only person to make this claim, and it's fairly well established that in fact, when the uh, white settlers arrived in Australia, they found these fertile plains full of um, edible plants that were replete with um, all kinds of animals and birds, and that this was the result of the systems of management that have been practised by Indigenous people since time immemorial. Uh, so these complaints made by the white settlers that Indigenous people were lazy and didn't want to work, in fact, they reflected the fact that actually, under traditional land management, Indigenous people could provide themselves with the, um, all, of, all of the necessities that they needed to, to live within a very short period of time. So they actually worked far less than um, most Europeans did in, in the old world, precisely because their system was so effective. But more than that, because they were able to exercise a degree of control over how they interacted with nature, they found the work that they did. Or the, the, they found the process of, of hunting, of gathering, um, of gathering food, of making You know, the conditions of life to be intensely meaningful, that these things were caught up, were bound up with systems of religion, systems of morality, systems of what we would call as play, and all of those things were entwined to make everyday life for indigenous people intensely meaningful. When white people came, when uh, European settlers came to Australia, the first thing they tried to do was to set up capitalist social relations because they were interested in creating commodities which would then be exported back to to, to Britain, primarily um, agricultural products, wool and and, and, and so on. In order to do that, they needed to establish capitalist wage labour. Capitalist wage labour means... People selling their labour power to an employer, and the employer then putting them to work. And working for an employer means just simply doing the thing that your employer wants you to do over and over and over again. And what's really fascinating is Indigenous people simply couldn't comprehend what anyone would want to do this. For them, the tasks that they were being asked to do were completely meaningless and the notion that you would just do the one thing under someone else's control just seems the the most appalling idea and so you know it was with great difficulty that they could ever be persuaded to do this because they you know they said well look you know there's a storehouse of um of food and game in in the bush all around us and this is a far better way to live and to go back to the point that you made there is a really interesting comparison in that the europeans used techniques to inculcate indigenous people into practices of wage labor that were based on you know education or based on physical violence that based on trying to you know bring up young children so that all they knew was the idea of wage labor and all of these techniques were fairly explicitly developed based on techniques that they um, that had been implemented as they had tried to induct people into wage labour within england itself so there's a really interesting comparison you could make between the way that say industrialists in ireland or scotland complained that the irish and the scottish who weren't accustomed to wage labour either and were also living on the land in a slightly different kind of way, but they were still living in pre-capitalist social relations on a particular, um, in very much associated with a particular location. To try and induct them into wage labour, they had to develop systems of... Particular systems of education, particular notions of religious inculcation, of religious um, obligations, and so on, and 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 so forth. And so, there's this curious kind of parallel. You can make the argument that the destruction of an older way of life in England itself led to vast numbers of people being driven off their traditional um, lands as they were enclosed to set up agricultural labour. These people then came into the great cities like London, where they couldn't find any, any work. Many of them ended up as criminals, and then they were transported to Australia, where then they played a role in disrupting the traditional way of life of Indigenous people in Australia. And I think that resistance, that, which you can see over and over again in every country, that resistance to the imposition of wage labour, Is actually tremendously profound because it reminds us that we don't have to work in the way that we do today. That, in fact, for most of human existence, the, this bizarre relationship where we just do the same thing over and over again, while our bot, you know, as directed by our boss, is not how we've interacted with the natural world, and it's not the only way that people can interact with the natural world. And, you know, I, I think that particularly in, a, in in a place like Australia, we'll recognise that for tens of thousands of of years, Indigenous people were able to live on the Australian continent in such a way as to improve. Um, the ecologies on which they depended should be a tremendous resource of hope because if they did it in the past, there's no reason why it can't be done in the future. Which is not to say of course that we can return to you know the pre-1788 society. but the basics point still holds. We don't have to live according to the destructive practices of capitalism.
0: Yes. I think you're right. You also describe how um, consumerist culture was deliberately manufactured um, and that consumers were not born. But because the system required commodities to be constantly exchanged, so with mass production, capitalists needed mass consumption, how were ordinary people coerced and cornered into wasteful consumerist patterns?
1: Yeah, exactly. Again, you know the things that we take for granted are very much the product of history. Now, if you think about a pre-industrial society where most people are either making themselves the, the clothes and the, the items which they rely, or somebody nearby is making them for them, then... You can see how a very different attitude to waste would prevail under some such conditions you know people would try to make something last as long as possible and it would be you know repeatedly repaired and so on and in fact in the early um, phases of capitalism this is the kind of attitude that prevails in 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 the book i quote benjamin franklin is kind of an eulog of early um, the early period of capitalism urging frugality as the you know a, 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 as the ethic that workers should embrace but of course in a later period of capitalism frugality is in fact precisely what workers can't embrace or shouldn't embrace because of course the capitalists realize that the working class itself is a potential market and as such is urged to increasingly consume and consume. And there's a particular turning point where you can really see this happen you see, in, in, in American history, the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, where America's just come out of this um, out of, out of a, a conflict in which the factory system has been churning out bombers and tanks and guns and, and ammunition and the industrialists are incredibly worried that there's not going to be markets for all this. This stuff and um the industrials and the american government recognize one potential market as the american people themselves so it's, so it's in this phase that the sort of consumer capitalism we take for granted today gets developed and so they, they shift they turn almost on a dime from urging people to be frugal during the war to telling people to consume more and more and more and um I mean, in, in the book, I quote some of the, the the ads of the early 1950s, and they are just extraordinary. They explicitly are telling people, consume more, waste more. The more you waste, the, the better it is. And this is the, the, phase, of, the phase of capitalism in which um, various psychologists are deployed to, to think of different ways that they can make, you know, commodities seem out of date even when they're fully functional it's when they, they they start to develop methods of methods by which commodities will will break at certain points so you have to buy them again even when it's possible you know for, for you to keep using it it's, it's a point where they start developing various kinds of packaging you know, as, as a way of selling more plastic and so on. And, you know, I mean, in some ways we probably know all of this, but it is kind of astonishing to see how overt it is and, you know, how self-conscious these people are. They say that capitalism requires all of this stuff to be consumed and used up. But, of course, from our perspective, it's particularly tragic because the period after World War Two is the period that ecological scientists call the Great Acceleration, that this is the period in which that humanity's extraction of various natural resources goes through the roof. And it's a prelude to the kind of crisis that we find ourselves in now. Well, you know... This is not all about consumption. Consumption is only part of the story. But it is kind of astonishing and kind of obscene to look back to the politicians and industrialists of that era and how shamelessly they are trying to find more ways to waste natural resources. You know, it's not something that is disguised, it's something they say overtly. And these are the same people who have the gall to
0: blame ordinary people for doing what they were told to do. Mm. The disastrous effects of burning fossil fuels on the climate have been known by all producers for more than 60 years, um, and you sort of uh, reproduce that timetable in your book. Um, But rather than address it, they sort of embarked on a decades-long PR campaign to undermine, deny the science, prevent government action, while they were massively expanding the industry globally and you know normalize the destruction of nature more recently bp rebranded themselves beyond petroleum and um, coined the term carbon footprints so individuals would concentrate on their own efforts even if it made no appreciable difference so that you know to divert attention away from bp's own efforts you know, you explain that corporate PR is an outgrowth of economic logic, but also because corporations actually understand something about ordinary people that actually escapes many environmentalists. What is it that they understand?
1: Yeah, the corporation make it quite clear that they recognise that um, most ordinary people hate the environmental destruction they see all around them, and they want to do something about it. And so over and over again, you see these corporations trying to find ways to derail this. And the most common way they, they, they find is to turn an anger against systemic practises into a hostility towards individual choices. So you give the idea, you, you give the example of the, the carbon footprint concept, you know, and again, it's one of those terms that is now so entirely normalised, many people forget or perhaps didn't know that this was actually part of a of a, of a BP, um, a conscious BP PR campaign, precisely based on the, on, on the notion that if they could get individuals worrying about um, how much carbon they were personally responsible for then they would implicitly equate your personal use with the use of bp itself bp has a carbon footprint you have a carbon footprint how dare you criticize bp before you start trying to amend your own carbon footprint and you know of course the whole idea of the carbon footprint is that it sets up an, a possibility, an impossibility. There was a study by MIT students who established that because fossil fuel use is built into the American economy, it really didn't matter what you did as an individual, that your share of the aggregate um, fossil fuel expenditure wouldn't change even if you were a homeless person, even if you were a Buddhist monk. The individual choices that you made didn't matter at all. So... But as you, you touched upon, these kind of PR campaigns, they're not just a kind of manifestation of the sort of supervillain evil of, um, uh, uh, of corporate, lead, as corporate leaders, that there's an underlying logic to them. And, and, and that logic is that capital is the expansion of value. Capital is, capitalism is a system that must continue to grow and must continue to grow blindly And for capital, any restriction on that growth is something that must be overcome. So, you know, like a shark must keep swimming, capitalism must continue to grow. And if it doesn't, it collapses. So, any obstacles to that growth becomes something that needs to be overcome and historically those obstacles function as opportunities for capitalism to to, to restructure itself, to enable a renewed round of, of, of growth and that tends to be what we see that when there is um, an attempt to push back against the destructive elements of, of the capitalist system, what the capitalists tend to try and do is to find a way to turn that campaign into a Pivot point that then allows them to, um, you know, to continue their, their their expansion. So you know, like um, in the early phases of the the turn to single use packaging, there was widespread outrage at how suddenly, you know, cans and other packaging were were, were just spoiling the, the countryside all around America. The various packaging companies came together, set up a group called Keep America Beautiful, which you know many people thought was an environmental group. It was in fact funded by the, by the by the people who were responsible for despoiling America. And again, Keep America Beautiful, simultaneously pushed to 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 encourage ordinary people to take responsibility for their own waste. While pushing against any kind of restrictions on the companies themselves, it was on the basis of these kind of campaigns that these corporations were able to grow and grow and um, and grow. And I think this is really the fundamental question, and for something something that anyone who's concerned about climate change needs to address. That the problem isn't simply bad decisions, or you know. Individual industrialists who aren't concerned enough about the environment. The problem is the dynamic of a system that must continue to blindly grow, irrespective of the consequences. And until we address that, until we're able to renegotiate the way that we as humans relate to the natural world, then the environmental crisis will continue to get worse and worse.
0: Yeah, you also make a uh, devastating case against green capitalism. And the concept that, you know, technological progress can be decoupled from ecological damage. And you use the electrical vehicle industry to demonstrate the flaws on relying on this. Um, can you give a little outline?
1: Yeah, I mean, so the, tr- the traditional critique of green capitalism, or one of the traditional critiques, rests on... The nature of capitalist efficiency. So very often, the people who talk about grand capitalism talk about, like, well, you know, that um, capitalism spurs innovations. These innovations will allow us to to become more and more efficient with the things we do. Thus, we'll, we'll lose, we'll use less energy, and we'll have um, less less impact on the environment. Capitalism will gradually dematerialize itself. The problem is with this, of course, is that because capitalism isn't a system that operates democratically, but rather one where capital just seeks profit blindly and seeks expansion at the cost, as soon as capitalism produces efficiencies, those efficiencies are then exploited more and more and more. So for instance, you know, or one of the examples that, that often comes up in, in the literature, people who are of a certain age will remember that um, the, the personal computer was, was posited as, as an environmental step forward, that it was supposed to be, you know, it, we would all set up home offices and we wouldn't use paper anymore. In fact, what happens is that the, the creation of home computers opened up this massive new market for paper manufacturers and, you know, in fact, when everyone had home computers, they all started to, needed to use more paper than ever before and, in fact, the, the, the degree of environmental waste continued Uh, to to, to increase and you see that happening over and over and over again so you know electric cars are a really a really good example you could see that electrification is clearly going to be um an important part of um any kind of um social solution to the environmental crisis but electrification is only useful if it is um Controlled and directed into places where it can actually, you know, where it can actually be less ecologically damaging. What the environment, what the the rush to electric cars is doing, is in fact allowing um, car manufacturers to continue to manufacture more and more private vehicles. You know, so electric cars become alternatives to things like bike riding or to public transport systems or to Uh, to, to, to other options. So what we get is, in fact, these kind of electric solutions, not as an alternative to capitalism, but a way to allow the capitalist economy to continue to grow and to grow and to grow and to continue to be more and more destructive. So, you know, technology can be incredibly useful, but the problem... Isn't The environmental crisis is not a technological problem. It's a problem with what we do with that technology. So we already know the solutions. The problem is that in a capitalist economy, it's almost impossible for us to implement the solutions.
0: Yes, you don't let um, environmentalism off the hook either. In the book, you, you reckon with the racism and the colonial foundations of conservation and its legacy in the environmental movement today. You also systematically dismantle the common sense argument that planetary overpopulation is responsible for climate change. Um, Can you give us an idea on why this myth became so ubiquitous uh, for so long and why it is so damaging for the climate movement?
1: It's easy for a, a lot of contemporary environmentalists to not come to terms with how significant population theory or populationism was to the modern environmental movement. But, in fact, if you look back to the environmentalism of the 60s, the the Paul Ehrlich book, The Population Bomb, is probably one of the most influential um, and most important texts of the early movement. And, And that's because, I think, that on face value, you know, the 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 notion of that population is a problem seems to make sense. And it goes back to the the discussion we were having earlier about that sort of common sense opposition between a pristine wilderness and the human beings who despoil it. If you think that, you know, that environmentalism should be about defending a wilderness untouched by human beings, from the population as a whole. Well, the more people there are, you know, the harder that environmental task is going to be. But of course, as I said that, that that opposition between wilderness and humanity never made any sense, and the claim that population is responsible for environmental destruction doesn't make any sense either. And there are all kinds of I- examples. Of, of this you know some of them are just obvious common sense places you can look at some of the poorest places in the world and they are they are vastly underpopulated you can look at some of the richest cities and they have lots and lots of people there no one would suggest that you know removing some people from new york would somehow make new york um richer but you know for, for australians i mean it's a really interesting example as well that like the coming of of white settlers to Australia destroyed much of the topsoil of the continent within the space of a few years. That wasn't because white people overpopulated the country. In fact, what happened, white settlement led to a massive decline of the population of the country because so many indigenous people were killed or died of disease and the the very reason for the environmental crisis was that indigenous people were no longer able to protect to practice their traditional custodianship of the land and you know as a result most of the topsoil simply blew away it wasn't that there were too many people the problem was there weren't enough people so you know you can go through of, of, of these arguments, one of the reasons why the legacy of Paul Ehrlich isn't really discussed as much as it should be is precisely because all the claims that he made about the apocalyptic consequences of population growth um, proved to be completely and totally wrong. And in fact, you know, the rate of population growth has been declining massively all over the all over the world for years. So it's not. But the point is, I guess, it's not just that this is a wrong argument. It's a completely reactionary argument, you know. Anyone who's talking about populationism, anyone who who makes the claim that there are too many people in the world, you you never hear them saying, well, okay, there are too many people in the world, therefore, you know, I'm going to go and cut my throat or, you know, me and my family are going to go put ourselves in the eugenics chamber It's always someone else who is the problem if there are too many people the people making that argument always have someone else in the mind in mind as the person who's responsible for that overpopulation and those other people are invariably the usual scapegoats so you know back in the 60s and the 70s it was usually directed at the so-called teeming masses of the third world but you know it's sometimes directed against the working class home. It's connected to those arguments about ordinary people being, you know, uh, greedy consumers who use up the world's um, resources. in some ways it's a hop, skip and a jump between those the, those two arguments. You know, if you're saying that people are you know, the problem is that people are too greedy and too selfless, it's a hop, skip and a jump to say the problem is that people simply exist. So, you know, like, the population arguments really push in those right-wing directions. I mean, I wrote a previous book looking at the politics of the uh, the Christchurch atrocity, and, you know, it's worth noting that the, um, the perpetrator of that atrocity, a self-described fascist, made a series of supposedly ecological arguments basically making a populationist case. saying so, like, well, you know, we're destroying the planet, human beings are destroying the planet. The problem is that there are too many people and they're destroying the planet, and look, I'm going to get rid of some of them. And, you know, so not everyone who makes a populationist argument is the equivalent of the um, Christchurch perpetrator, of course, but it is a right-wing argument and it pushes in terrible directions. Human beings aren't the problem.
0: Humans are the solution, and I think that's really important. Mm. You also highlight the traditional left and environmentalists, have often been on opposing sides. This is most clearly demonstrated by, you know, the Stalinist and Maoist models of state-driven rapid industrialization, which demanded both ecological devastation and horrific repression. Um, but the common sense on the left that sort of grew out of that in some ways was that, you know, nature was the external resource to be used and resh- reshaped for the benefit of the working class. And yet you also show that this dichotomy has not always existed and that there have all been incredible examples of class-based organising that saw the needs of nature and workers as intertwined. Can you talk a, a little bit about this and, you know, why class is so central? Yeah, now
1: this is a huge argument. huge argument, of course, and so i only just um, touch on it, but on on the question of the relationship between the working class and nature, you know, the thing that really struck me, because, you know, know, like a lot of people, I'd absorb the sort of notion that, you know, for a lot of ordinary working class people, nature wasn't a big issue, you know, environmentalism environmentalism was middle class, and so on and so forth, but... It's kind of fascinating that when you look at early working class movements, this is not the case at all. So when you look at the Chartists, you know the first mass working class movement in Britain, and you look at their propaganda, one of the things that comes that comes out again and again. Is that these are people talking about how they've been displaced from their villages and from the countryside and forced into the big cities to work in these horrible factories where they, they can't see a tree and they can't encounter any kind of animal and they hate it. They hate it and they say it over and over again, this is unnatural, you know, we're we're encased in smog all of the time, you know, we miss the natural environment that you know, that we are no longer able to to engage with and it's a real issue in the in the working class movement of that time i think that later the normalization of capitalist industry means that for generations of working class people they become more accustomed to living in places from which nature has been more or less effectively excised and you know and so In the traditional working-class world, with some exceptions, that arguments around nature are less apparent than they were in, say, the chartists' time. But one of the arguments that I I try to make in in, in the book is that because the ecological catastrophe now is so all-encompassing, it increasingly encroaches on the day-to-day lives of working-class people. That is, if we think about something like climate change, you know, Every study says the same point over and over again. The effects of climate change um, will be felt and are being felt disproportionately on the poor, the marginalised and the oppressed. You know, and it's like, okay, that means people in the developing world, but it also means people who, for instance, are working outside, you know, in periods in which, say there are increasing amounts of you know hot days and you're working on a building site it also means people who are exposed say to the smoke of the bushfires you know when sydney and melbourne are coated with carcinogenic smoke it also means people who are exposed to um, viruses that are produced by the destruction of, 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 of nature, with COVID being the, the most obvious example. So all of these consequences of environmental destruction are increasingly being imposed on ordinary working-class people in part of their day-to-day life. So I think that the, the, the association between working-class life and struggles
0: over nature um, is becoming closer and closer. Yeah, so this kind of leads to my final question. Having made an impressive case that capitalism will, will kill the planet, that it cannot be reformed but must be replaced, um, you, leave, you actually do leave us with great reasons to hope and to continue organising. Why should we stay hopeful?
1: <laughs> yeah, that is, I mean, that is, I think, the, the, the key question. Okay, one of the reasons why we should stay hopeful is an argument that I've been trying to make throughout this discussion and throughout the, uh, the book, that rather than ordinary people being enthusiastic perpetrators of the war against nature, in fact, we've seen over and over again that people's first reaction historically you know, example after example is to try to defend the natural world and that they intuitively grasp that there's a connection between the um, the way that people are treated and the way that nature is, is treated. And, you know, again and again, you can find examples of them fighting back against the, the destruction that's wrought by um, the capitalist system that's one reason that's one reason for um, for optimism the second one follows from what i was talking about before that the increasing encroachment of the overwhelming ecological crisis of which climate change is merely one component means that struggles around all sorts of issues are increasingly likely to become struggles around nature and the environment so I mentioned the COVID nineteen pandemic. You know, it's not a direct result of climate change, but uh, most scientists think that the encroachment of megacities around the world previously, um, um, on previously on 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 the surrounding forests that bring human beings into contact with viruses to which we've never previously had any um, contact and so leading to more and more viruses spreading to the human population so to that to, to that extent there's a connection between the environment crisis and the covid 19 crisis well one of one of the acts as i said before that's um the environmental crisis is increasingly manifesting itself on the people who are the poorest and the most depressed and that was very clear with with of where for instance You saw, um, say, in the struggles to organise in places like Amazon, that one of the demands that was coming up in those struggles... Well, there were a couple of demands that were relevant to what we talked about. Firstly, because people are working in these tremendous... tremendous um, These warehouses have become tremendously hot. The fact that people are fainting increasingly during hot weather that's becoming increasingly prevalent is something that arises again and again. So there's an issue about climate change there. But secondly, Amazon had huge rates of covid Covid effects because all of these people were crowded together. The bosses didn't want, didn't want to do anything to address it, and so if you're organising in, in an Amazon factory, well, issues around Covid and by extension, the environment inevitably um, really come up. Now that doesn't mean that every anyone fighting for a better wage rate in an Amazon factory in, instantly becomes uh, you know someone ca- campaigning around climate change, but it does mean the connections start to become to become more and more um, apparent and that I think is another basis for hope and thirdly and I think perhaps most importantly that we do have alternatives so you know I tried to talk in the book about the potential of a planned economy, the traditional socialist argument as a solution to the environmental crisis. As I think I said to you before, in most of the issues that you know we're addressing when we talk about climate change, there's no mystery as to what needs to be done. We know the solutions. We have the technology that um, that could make the solutions possible. What we don't have is an economic system that allows us to implement. These solutions. Instead, what we see over and over again is you know governments and NGOs trying to find ways to make environmental outcomes compatible with the logic of the market. So various you know, cap and trade schemes, the creation of carbon markets, all sorts of ways to turn environmental solutions into forms that are compatible with the logic of the capitalist system and of course this is completely us about what we need to do is to change the way we live and the way that we work into forms that aren't destructive to the planet and in fact help to repair it and you know if we weren't burdened by the logic of capitalism and the logic of the market if we sat down democratically and collectively and said okay what are the problems that we face how might we solve them then all at once all kinds of alternatives become possible there are all sorts of things where you can say instantly okay we will stop doing that because it's destroying the planet instead we will start doing this because it regenerates the planet and you know one of the reasons why the mainstream discourse about climate change is at such a dead end is it can't imagine alternative capitalism well i think you know the the socialist tradition legacy the socialist tradition legacy of an alternative capitalism the notion of a democratically planned system where we control what we do and how we do it is i think a tremendous asset and, you know, the foundation on which we can, you know, build something better. Now, you know, obviously, we're a long way from implementing a um, a planned economy. Obviously, there's all sorts of obstacles that need to be overcome. But, you know, as I said earlier, you, know, you only have to look at the Australian continent tens of thousands of uh, of years people successfully operated a fundamentally different way of managing the land a fundamentally different way of managing their labor now that wasn't socialism but it was a system fundamentally different to capitalism if it's possible to do that and in fact throughout the majority of human history that's what people have done if it's possible to operate different alternatives to capitalism there's no reason why we can't come up with a new and better system today and that's an increasingly urgent task i think
0: i think we'll leave it there thank you so much i'm only sorry that we couldn't actually cover more of your book but it's going to be a great resource in um continuing to build that movement and i want to thank you very much jeff thank you so much for having me